0: and therefore it is highly trusted. You put all of that together and you have the beginning of a new asset class.
1: The halvings tend to be a shock to price, a shock upward to price. It doesn't all happen on one day, but the price tends to rise in the year before halving, and we've certainly seen that in this cycle as well. At that point, the handwriting was pretty clear that they were probably going to have to allow Grayscale to convert, and the floodgates opened, and you had more than a dozen applications.
0: Welcome to the Orion X Download. This is a podcast where we discuss and simplify the big ideas and technology that are changing the world. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Orion X Download podcast where we look at big ideas in tech. The topic today is primarily Bitcoin, but first the usual disclaimer. What we are discussing here is not financial advice or really any other kind of advice. With that out of the way, a lot is going on in the cryptocurrency world and especially with the main player there, Bitcoin. So it's time to catch up with the state of the market. And here with me once again is one of the early and leading analysts of cryptocurrencies and Fintech, my dear colleague Dr. Stephen Parano. How are you, Steve?
1: Hi Shaheen, and it's great to be back on the podcast.
0: Yeah, really looking forward to it. So there is a lot going on in Bitcoin. I wonder if it might make sense to just quickly describe what Bitcoin is and catch everybody up on the state of things?
1: Sure. I like to think of Bitcoin as monetary technology. It first came into existence in January of 2009. The first block was created starting on January 3rd. The anonymous or pseudo-anonymous Satoshi Nakamoto published his white paper on Halloween day in 2008. And then three months later, he implemented the code and started the what's called the blockchain running and the first block took a bit longer than usual (laughs) and was produced within the the first week and a half and it's been running ever since and now they're Over 800,000 of these 10 minute blocks. Now, each block is a contest between all of the cryptocurrency miners who are running the Bitcoin algorithm, which is based on hashing, in particular SHA 256 hashing. And they're all competing to try and solve a cryptographic hashing puzzle. And what they do is they gather a bunch of transactions and then they put them into the ledger. But only the one who first solves the puzzle gets the right to actually add another block into the ledger of truth. And then they receive a block reward for doing that, what's called a, a subsidy. They also will receive some transaction fees, but their income is today derived primarily from the block reward. Now, each one of these blocks, therefore, is creating or minting or mining new Bitcoin. And as time has gone on, More and more mining power, and it's now at the level, very high level of supercomputing power, has gone into securing this blockchain and for competing for these block rewards. So it's very secure, but in addition, there's a tightly constrained supply algorithm to
0: Bitcoin. As you mentioned, there are tens of thousands of computer nodes all over the world that are cooperating together. And that's quite a massive force and a really interesting way of looking at collateral for something of value.
1: Well, let me clarify something. There are tens of thousands of nodes, somewhat upward of 10,000 nodes that hold the, the. They're called full nodes and they hold the entire blockchain and the history of the ledger. That's distinct from the mine equipment that is competing to find the next new block. And it turns out that Bitcoin has essentially a tripartite governance where you can think of the open source code as the law, and you can think of the miners as the executive function, and you can think of these full nodes that hold the entire ledger as a judiciary. Now, there are literally millions of mining rigs that are constantly searching and solving for the cryptographic hashing puzzle to capture the next block reward. And my estimate is some 5 million ASIC-based mining rigs located around the world, both on small scale and very large scale. And when you aggregate all of that, it turns out that the measure of compute power that we use is exahashes, So we're well into the exascale and approaching the zeta scale. And an exa, as you recall, is a billion billion or 10 to the 18. So every second, there are about 500 exo hashes of computation that are going on in an attempt to solve for that particular block.
0: Yeah, it's really serious supercomputing power all brought to keep this thing secure. So it's open source and therefore a whole bunch of transparency that comes with that it's cryptographic, it's obviously digital, it's decentralized with all the immutable ledger always go forward, it's used a blockchain algorithm, but really what else we've talked about is probably as important, and therefore it is highly trusted. You put all of that together and you have the beginning of a new asset class. So let's talk a little bit about how this has become an asset class over the years.
1: Sure. Well, Aristotle, more than two millennia ago, (laughs) laid out the key attributes of money. And he said, scarcity, the visibility, durability, and portability. And of course the reference point at that time was gold coins and silver coins, right? Mm. Because those were the monies really for millennia. And one can add to that as a very valuable attribute fungibility. That is, one unit is light the next. Well, Bitcoin actually adheres very well to all of these attributes. In fact, you can argue that it adheres to those attributes better than gold because it is more divisible. It's highly divisible into 100 million subunits for each Bitcoin unit. It's extremely durable. In theory, it's permanent. And it's extremely portable. You can move it across the planet in less than an hour. Now, that leaves one more attribute, which is scarcity. And Bitcoin has encoded into its algorithm absolute scarcity. Currently, there are about 19.6 million Bitcoin that have already been minted. They're already in the ledger, in the blockchain. In the future, another approximately 1.4 million will be minted, and that's it. It will max out at 21 million. And Satoshi Nakamoto did something very clever, which is he implemented this halving algorithm such that the block reward is cut in half every four years. To be precise, it's a certain number of blocks, but it's registered to be close to four four calendar years. And we're coming up on another one in about three months. So there have been three of these in the past. The initial reward was 50 bitcoins per 10-minute block. And after the next halving, it's going to be reduced to 3.125. So this is absolute scarcity. This sort of absolute scarcity completely changes the supply-demand dynamics and the supply-demand curve for Bitcoin.
0: So when I hear fixed supply, it sort of conjures in me the fluid dynamics view of the world where you're either Eulerian or Lagrangian. And, and I feel like that's one definition of money, value, currency, that you have a fixed supply and the value of each unit changes to fit what you need. But the flip side is when you have a fixed value and that's really the stable coin phenomenon that we've seen where the value is fixed but the supply varies to meet the underlying asset value. So it seems to me that both of them are necessary. But when I look at the chatter on social media, there is an overwhelming positivity towards fixed value and lack of inflation. And what, what, won't we lose something if we go entirely that way?
1: The other way of looking at money is that it is a store of value and a medium of exchange and a unit of account. So the design of Bitcoin, we've already discussed the unit of account and the store of value aspect. The fact that it's scarce and highly secure is what drives stores of value. So then we come on to the question of medium of exchange, and that's the utility function That's when you spend money, right? Mm. And that's currency. So there have been many cryptocurrencies that have come into existence. And most of them, rather than looking at the Bitcoin attributes, have tried to increase the utility and the spendability by increasing the transaction count. So they looked at that as a scaling problem. But the other thing is they tried to do it all on the first layer. Mm. Uh, Bitcoin's attitude towards that is it should be done on higher layers. And so there are technologies that allow you to do that. Clearly, money needs to do both. Right now, it fits more the role of reserve currency or reserve asset or long-term savings. For it to be useful to buy a cup of coffee or spending, then you really need to go to a second layer. And that's a consequence of the fixed supply and a relatively slow transaction rate. And what's different about Bitcoin as a reserve currency is that it's a reserve currency that's available to individuals and corporations. Bitcoin is private money. It's not government money. When Aristotle laid out his attributes, he didn't mention that a nation state would necessarily create the money. So what we're used to today is fiat money in every nation, and central banking. And that's a hierarchical process where you have retail money, which is what we're all familiar with, but then you have something that's reserve money or bankers reserves. And that's money that only banks and central banks are allowed to own. You're not allowed to own that that central bank money. So reserves historically were gold, and then they switched over to be something else. And now they're just bookkeeping entries. And essentially in the U.S., they offset U.S. treasuries, and other countries might keep U.S. dollar reserves typically is treasury bills and bonds. They might keep some gold. They might keep some euro, et cetera. With Bitcoin, you have something that might be an alternative to reserve currencies, and they could be held by individuals and corporations, as well as governments and non-profit organizations and the like.
0: When we talk about the price of Bitcoin in dollars or euros or whatnot... We are linking it to something that is itself volatile and is itself inflationary. So then when we say stablecoin, we are sort of, mathematically speaking, we are selecting a currency to determine that stability. That kind of changes the dynamics of really what is stable and what is volatile, doesn't it?
1: Sure. We saw the money supply in the U.S. (laughs) jump at a 20% rate as we were coming out of COVID and took very extraordinary measures. Typically, over the longer term, the U.S. M2 money supply grows about 7% compound. Mm -hmm. And so it'll double roughly every decade. So is that stable? Well, not truly, right? Bitcoin is going to be stable from a supply dynamic more than any sort of money that we've ever had, because with the next halving, it's going to cut its supply emission rate to less than 1%. And it will never be higher. It will always be lower than 1%. But it remains highly volatile because its market cap while growing is still relatively small. And so it's hard for people to to measure against it still it, you could look at it as the comparison of gold and silver mm. gold is relatively less volatile than silver is now silver's got industrial uses more than gold etc but silver tends to be more, more volatile because it's not as large a market cap
0: There's also a lot more of it around right
1: It's more of it, but it's not recycled to the same extent as gold is.
0: Now, one thing I wanted to bring up, and just a reminder to our audience, is the crypto super reports that you've been doing for the past five years, and it's now become a pretty impressive body of historical records and analysis. Let's talk a little bit about that and some of the highlights of the most recent one.
1: Sure. This was our 11th report, and we released it last November. And at that time, we always have a cutoff as to which of the proof-of-work currencies can be included. Since this is a crypto super report, what we care is about computer usage and proof-of-work, large computations that enter into the hashing algorithms for proof of work. And so at most we've, in any of our reports, the maximum number of cryptocurrencies that we ever had was six. And we started out in November, 2018, we had Bitcoin, we had Ethereum, because at that time it was a proof of work algorithm. We had Litecoin, we had Bitcoin Cash, and we had Monero. So we had five in that report. There was one report where we had six. I think was Zcash was the other one. But over time, it's narrowed down more and more to be Bitcoin. Ethereum, of course, dropped out over a year ago when they switched to fully proof of stake. And as of the last report, Dogecoin was number two, but they were only responsible for about 4% of the total value. So predominantly, it was Bitcoin, and Bitcoin's revenue production rate, or what we call annual economic value, on the report was about $11 billion. If you use today's price, it'd be slightly higher, about $12 billion as the annual run rate of production. So that's the rules of the game. Then we look at Electricity usage and what we find is that Bitcoin is greener than average. First of all, it uses electricity and electricity is greener than just burning hydrocarbons. But even if you look at the way that electricity is generated around the globe, a minority of that is, is due to renewables plus nuclear. Whereas the Bitcoin mining council estimates that about 60% of global Bitcoin mining is based on sustainable electricity, including nuclear. The Bitcoin miners who, you know, as I say, can be small shops or very large, tend to seek out the lower cost of electricity. In many cases, that's hydropower. In some cases, that's been coal, which is not so good. But really, all sources have been input, solar, wind, nuclear, etc. The biggest change was when mining moved out of China. China put a ban on its getting on three years now since they banned Bitcoin mining in the May-June timeframe. And as a result, what had once been as high as three quarters of Bitcoin mining located in a single nation fled to other locations, including Russia and Kazakhstan in Asia, but especially to the United States. And so now the U.S. has about one third of the hash rate of all the hardware that's devoted to mining. Mm And concomitant with that, what we had was the rise of venture capital funded new companies traded on NASDAQ that are Bitcoin mining companies. And that's what they do as their main business. If you take the top dozen of those, collectively, they have a market cap of about $8 billion. And collectively, they produce about 20% of all the Bitcoin and about 20% of all the hash rate, of course. Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly, they're located in the US, but also in Canada, in Scandinavia, and a few other countries around the world.
0: So it's important to note that the electricity usage for Bitcoin is really part of the design. It is a feature. It's not a bug it is enforcing an incentive structure that keeps everybody focused on promoting the chain and not try to cheat because cheating is punished severely and it's likely not going to work anyway. Whereas working together as prescribed has rewards. Can you speak a little bit to that?
1: Sure. It's competition, right? I mean, every miner is seeking to win the race for that block. But also, every miner is incentivized by the rules to stick to the rules. And collectively, they then are resisting what are called these 51% attacks. In order to capture the next block as a bad actor, you'd have to have half of the hash rate or more. Or you might get lucky with a third of the hash rate, but it's not enough to capture one block, then you have to capture the next block. And then you have to capture the block after that and so forth if you want to have the chain diverge from the way that it would normally proceed. And it becomes exponentially harder to do that. And you can't unwind the existing chain without that becoming exponentially harder as you look backwards as well. And just a few blocks is enough to really have things be quite hardened. So typically, the rule of thumb is six blocks. You engage in a transaction, and you can feel pretty highly confident that it's not going to be diverted or double-spent, really, is the main attack vector after about one hour.
0: So they are incentivized to kind of keep to the rules of the road. Now you've had many brilliant ideas over the years since I've known you, but I think one of the more brilliant ones has been the whole idea of the block calendar and to use the blockchain as kind of what it does, which is it marks time. So let's talk a little bit about block calendar and what Bitcoin, I feel like saying star date. But it's uh, like sure. Love- Please do.
1: I'm an astronomer by, <laughs> <Astrophysicist> by
0: <laughs> training. So <laughs> calendars
1: come naturally because calendars are based on three cycles, the Earth's rotational cycle, the lunar cycle, and the Earth's revolution around the sun, the solar cycle. So we have three, right? And that's our Gregorian calendar. And we tweaked it and twiddled with it so that it kind of works, right? And Bitcoin has the same three. And I'm not taking credit for this. This all goes back to Satoshi Nakamoto's design. But it essentially has a day. It essentially has a month or a, a sort of a lunar tie-in. And it certainly has a year in it. And then it also has this kind of the business cycle, which is this four-year cycle that occurs between halvings. So if we look at the day, it's just each block is 10 minutes, six of those in an hour, 24. So you have 144, which is a gross in a day. Now that's nominal. Any block, might take less than 10 minutes or more than 10 minutes. And so let's say that a bunch of blocks take nine minutes. Well, there's this ingenious adjustment mechanism called the difficulty adjustment. Hmm. And that happens every 2016 blocks. That turns out to be about a fortnight. You can think of it as half of a lunar cycle, if you will. Uh And what that does is it forces everything back towards 10 minutes. So it looks at the average over the prior couple of weeks and says, all right, the problem that you have to solve is going to get more difficult or less difficult in proportion to how much faster or slower the blocks have been generated. Well, in the long term, the difficulty goes up and rather drastically. And it's a function of both the block times and how many miners are adding hash rate. And the hash rate has grown exponentially over the years for both Raw numbers of mining rigs and the technology upgrades that have happened. And then the next cycle is what I call block year. And a block year is 52,500 blocks. Well, 52 is kind of a familiar number, right? Mm. And uh, so a 1,000 is about a week. And it's also one quarter of a halving. The the halvings are 210,000 blocks between halvings. And it works out to, to about four years. Now, in the first couple of halving cycles, it was running quite a bit faster. And a few years ago, the Bitcoin calendar was about two weeks faster than the Gregorian calendar. And now it's really right, right close. It's within a couple of days or so of a Gregorian calendar for, for Bitcoin year. So when I look at the price and market cap over long periods of time, I like to look at it in terms of the block calendar because the halvings and the difficulty adjustments which happen in the context of that calendar system are so important and fundamentally important
0: for Bitcoin. So what block is it right now? So it's... 800,000
1: something. I was just checking earlier. We just passed uh, another block month. So we're now a bit over 15.75 block years. Now, remember, Bitcoin started in January 2009. So we're a little over 15 calendar years. The block years have been a bit faster. So we're just over 15.75 block years as of now. And that means we have a quarter year to go to year 16 elapsed, which will be the next halving, and that will happen around mid-April.
0: Yeah, yeah. It sort of reminds me that over all this 15 years, the main chain has never been hacked. That while individual right. users may have been careless or lost their password or whatnot, one of the reasons why folks are interested in Bitcoin is because it's got a pretty flawless record of security. And it's open 24 7. And it's open <laughs> 24 <right? laughs> 7.
1: Unlike your banks, which are pretty open now through your, your browser. Yeah, they've got but, better. Uh, they've, got they've got better. But, but you're but right. They have, yeah. they have some downtime and yeah. uh, they have regularly scheduled maintenance. And uh, the number of hours that the New York Stock Exchange is open, the longest is 32 and a half hours per week if there are no holidays.
0: Right, right. So before we talk about banks kind of getting into Bitcoin, let's continue with having. so. We talked about what it is and what's been the historical impact of having, because on the one hand, you reduce the number of new coins that are being minted by a factor of two, which is substantial. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that the number of coins that are available for sale become less, but then there's a mass of coins that have already been minted. So what's been the impact of that on price and on transaction fees and the way the miners react to this?
1: Sure. The halvings tend to be a shock to price, a shock upward to price. It doesn't all happen on one day, but the price tends to rise in the year before having, And we've certainly seen that in this cycle as well. The price was up drastically in 2023, over over 100% as we're approaching this next having, And then the price tends to rise after having too for a year and a half because, uh, I don't know, it takes a while for people to get used to ideas. They don't necessarily respond right away. But the price cuts supply and you think about the new supply, it comes from the miners, and they either sell it or hold on to it. And they sell it so that they can buy electricity and so that they can buy new capital equipment because they constantly have to refresh in order to keep up in their race for more exahashes. So it's a shock in supply downward. Currently, the supply inflation rate is 1.7%. It's going to be cut to about 0. 08 to 0.9% with the next halving. 0.83% exactly, actually. And that just makes it scarcer, right? That's right. You just compare gold and silver, and they have very different stock-to-flow ratios. Mm-hmm. Gold is much higher. Now, some might say, well, once it's 1%, does it matter that much if it's less than 1%? And perhaps it matters less. But still, there's just less new supply to go on to exchanges or for people to buy on buy exchanges and then hold in a wallet and a lockdown. And there's less, then on the flip side, there's less reward to miners. So the miners, for them to survive, the price needs to go up. And so when the supply is cut in half, their revenues nominally are cut in half, apart from the transaction fees, which are a few percent. And they have a choice. They can find less expensive electricity, or they can put in newer, faster hardware that runs at 200 terahashes instead of 100 terahashes, as the newest stuff is is starting to be, or they can increase and, and win more of the rewards, they need to increase their efficiency. And the weakest miners will shut down. So maybe what will happen is some are driven out, or some will shut in some of their older equipment, but they'll keep running with their newer equipment. Some will, when they've been under stress, will say, Well, I had these Ethereum GPUs, let's go offer AI services with those. So some of them will extend their high performance computing business in the direction of AI, and some have done that. But mostly what happens is they are dependent on the price going up, at least by a factor of two, to cut for the supply to, to adapt to the supply cut for a factor of two, because they've already optimized for electricity. They're already optimizing to get the faster, Mm
0: hardware. So this thing is going to happen in April, the next halving? Mid-April,
1: yeah. We're just under 90 days away.
0: All right. Now, speaking of banks earlier, that's the other big news that's happening in the world of Bitcoin. One, of course, is the halving we just talked about. The other one is the emergence of ETFs. And let's talk a little bit about that. What is it? What is the historical record for those? And how does that impact the market now that you've got actual banks in the business? Sure.
1: Well, Bitcoin investment side has grown up in a fintech ethos with a lot of new players. And of course, many of these people had traditional finance backgrounds, but they saw the opportunity they went into cryptocurrency and they went into Bitcoin and, and started uh, new businesses and new firms. And those have been the exchanges we have had other vehicles. The longest vehicle that we've had is GBTC, which they cleverly set up as a trust. And it had rather high fees. It had 2% annual fees. But for a decade now, the SEC has rejected applications for ETFs. And it's been sort of a step function. It's been like rubber stamp, denied, next one denied. And they really didn't give any reason as to why they were denying. They were just doing it systematically. Now, more recently, and I think this was particularly after Gensler came in, there was a bit of a change. They got more aggressive on the enforcement of cryptocurrencies and exchanges in general. And of course we saw FTX taken down and a number of others that were gone after and, and taken down for fraudulent activities in, in the crypto space. And Bitcoin itself has never committed any fraud, but people with trading it on exchanges have committed fraud.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Now that step function all changed. In August of last year, when the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that I just mentioned, GPTC, which is organized not as an ETF but as a trust, had been wanting for a long time to convert to an ETF and they sued the SEC. And it was heard in the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Circuit Court decided in favor of Grayscale. And then They had 60 days to respond on the SEC side, and in October, they said, well, they weren't going to respond. They were accepting the decision, and we're not going to appeal it further. And that really pretty much was the other side of the step function.
0: That's when the handwriting got on the wall.
1: At that point, the handwriting was pretty clear that they were probably going to have to allow Grayscale to convert, and the floodgates opened, and you had more than a dozen applications. And then- really what changed was the SEC started talking to everybody. So BlackRock, huge, Fidelity, huge, were in there with applications. Others, Van Act, quite large, and some smaller ones, and the the s Franklin Templeton, and Big one, so they were talking finally to to people and saying okay here, here's what you've submitted, here's what we like, here's what we don't like and it, it became clear with more and more of these discussions that indeed they were going to approve probably quite a few and probably by January because they had a deadline ticking, and actually, the deadline was with art with they had the earliest deadline with Cathie Wood's archive, And so indeed, on, I guess it was January 11th, was about two weeks ago, they approved all these, or most of them. And we now have nine new ones and GPTC got approved by their conversion. And we've had 100,000 Bitcoin purchases by the, the new ones that were approved, the, the nine new spot ETFs. There had been a futures version that had been around for two or three years called Trades BITO. And so really the only vehicles were GPTC and BITO because the futures have been approved to trade in Chicago and the CME more than two years ago. So that's all that people had offered and available to them. And now this means that institutional investors and particularly registered investment advisors can now recommend something to their clients. And if people want to hold something into an IRA, it's much easier now.
0: Yeah, so when the supply is essentially fixed, price is going to vary according to demand only, pretty much, right? right? And since a lot of the people who hold Bitcoin have no intention of selling, the supply gets a little bit like constrained. And this opens up a whole mass of potential money to come in and promises to increase demand for the asset. So let's think a little bit historically, in the past, when an ETF has come about, what has it done to the underlying asset? Well, the closest
1: comparison is the gold ETF.
0: huh. When did that happen?
1: I don't recall. It was a couple of decades ago, I think now. It shot up in price over the next several years. The best known one is GLD. There Clever a name. Number of, yeah, there are a number of others. There's IAU, <laughs> Another Yeah, really. yeah. <laughs> those are the two largest, but there, there are others, and there are even ones where you can go double long and so forth. But they've traded for, I think it's a couple of decades now. And there was practically an order of magnitude. November two thousand and four was when the GLD came out.
0: So you're right and, on it. Uh, for two decades.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and well, they didn't capture all the gold in the world, but they've captured fair percentage. It's a minority percentage, but it's a fair percentage. And the price, well, the assets under management in the first decade went from nothing to $147 billion. Mm. And the, the price shot up and oh, it's come back down. But I think it's interesting to measure Bitcoin against gold in terms of value, in terms of market cap, because it's some
0: people call it digital gold. Yes, yes, and- I certainly have. And I think it's more like to like, isn't it?
1: And it was first viewed that way by the government. The IRS treats it as an asset or commodity, and they got approval to trade it on the future exchange where you trade commodities in Chicago. And so the CFTC called it a commodity. Mm. So the question is, what percentage of the many trillions of dollars that are managed by BlackRock and these other large asset managers like Fidelity and the names of these guys. What percentage? And it's going to come in over years. It's not a question of weeks, but over time, it's going to be substantial. I think gold, it was something like a factor seven in price in the early years, but I don't remember how many years. Mm-hmm. That-
0: so certainly for those who look at Bitcoin as something whose price is going to go up and that's their interest, this bodes well. This promises to cause the same thing. Now we've had, as of this recording, all of seven or eight trading sessions for these ETFs. What's happened since? seems like BlackRock is leading and Fidelity is right up there. And Grayscale, of course, has a big installed base. What's happened in the market?
1: Right, right. That's correct. And the thumbnail is that 100,000 Bitcoin have been purchased by the nine spot ETFs other than GPTC. And GPTC has seen a lot of selling. The price immediately shot up to 49,000. And then since then, it's been falling. And it's fallen below 40,000. It's 39000 and change as we speak. And part of the reason is that when GPTC went converted to an ETF, they reduced their fee only from 2% to 1.5%. That's still pretty high. Most of these have come out of the gate with fees like 0.2%, 0.25%, 0.3%. And some of them have eliminated fees for the first six months. And so GPTC is not competitive on a fee basis. And people are selling out of GPTC in order to enter into the new ones, A, because of their lower fees, and B, because maybe they want to diversify their holdings and not Mm have it all in one bucket. And thirdly, FTX is selling asset. TS is liquidating. And of course, they have a new CEO since SBF was prosecuted and jailed. And so the new CEO is basically in liquidation mode. And so the word on the street is a probably been a lot of FTX selling because they had substantial positions in GPTC and BITO, which is the futures linked product and they had authorization back in late November to sell from the court authorized mm-hmm. them to sell eight hundred and seventy three million dollars worth of their Bitcoin related holdings. So this is a kind of a buy in the rumor, sell on the news situation where once we had what looked like the okay from October onwards, the Bitcoin price was running up in the last two, three months. And I then- see. The actual <laughs> implement, the first available trading became this sell on the news, buy on the rumor, sell on the news. And of course, the sophisticated players can go short ahead, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's surely what they did. Plus, also, people like BlackRock and so forth needed to be buying ahead of time in order to fund the ETFs as retail purchases came in. So we're in a bit of a post ETF slump. We'll see how long it lasts. But I think that that having it's going to be in April is a big countervailing
0: force. Right. So it's really smart of FTX to wait to sell when a mass amount of money is coming into the system and can hold the price despite their selling. So that seems to be a pretty big factor. And then you mentioned people coming out of GPTC, but many of them presumably are going right back into some other fund to diversify. But there's got to be some who are profit-taking too. So net, the price hasn't really increased and has even dropped a little bit. So this has put a bit of a damper on. But the idea for those who are interested in that is that it will eventually go up because money continues to come in at pretty high rates, right? I mean, 100,000 BTCs, quite a few. That's the first week of
1: trading. And the the outflow from GPTC was 60,000. Bitcoin, and the inflow into the new ones is 100,000. So that's kind of, so you, you have to see the GPTC selling kind of level off maybe. Mm. And the, so the net was something like 40,000 Bitcoin for a week, right. which is still substantial. Remember only 900 are minted in one day. After right. having it, it's going to be 450 per day and 40,000 would represent in one week, 100 days production.
0: Right. And I saw that the volume for GBTC was lower today. So maybe it is slowing down. Now, let me ask you, what is an ETF? ETF,
1: exchange-traded fund, is just, in this case, physical Bitcoin that has to be held by the fund sponsor, by BlackRock or Fidelity or whoever it may be. And then they offer fractional shares and there'll be a certain fraction of Bitcoin per share. They price their shares, typically they price these things around 25 bucks. And so it might represent half of, like if Bitcoin's $40,000, then 1% of that would be 400. So how many shares to take 400 would be, what, 16? And then to get a whole Bitcoin, you'd need 1600 shares at 25 bucks. It's that kind of equation. So they manage that, and then they hold the Bitcoin somewhere with a custodian. And in most cases, that custodian is Coinbase. Fidelity has their own custodian, custodianship solution or capability. And then when you buy and sell, it's in terms of cash. So you buy with cash, and then you get these shares that represent Bitcoin. And then when you sell, you get in-cash redemption. It's more like you're buying and selling the gold ETF. You're buying a fraction of a gold bar when you buy the gold ETF. You're buying a fraction of a virtual Bitcoin locked into the blockchain ledger and custodied in a wallet at Coinbase, and that wallet is allocated to BlackRock.
0: But you're not gonna demand and receive gold bullions or something. All you can do is to sell it, right? To sell what you bought.
1: Correct, and at some point, there might be in-kind options, but the SEC is opposed to those. It was not going to approve them, certainly not in this first round. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of these sponsors are going to try and see if they can Ah. get approval later on for in-kind. And that may, may be interesting, particularly for deeper pockets, people that want to buy in larger amounts.
0: I see. I see. Why would they want to do that? Just for the satisfaction of having the real thing? Yeah, they might want to take delivery of the actual commodity at some point. Mm-hmm. So let's conclude with CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. There have been a few countries that have introduced them. So there's some experience out there and they continue to be a little bit controversial. Where's the status of that?
1: Yeah, the status of that is that it has been proceeding at, shall we say, a relatively leisurely pace. Hmm. Recall that I said that money is layered. Did you have a base layer of monetary reserves? And then you have banker's money, basically. And then you have the retail layers of cash and checking deposits and physical dollars. The CBDCs, they went through a lot of turmoil as they studied and analyzed these things. And should they be direct accounts at the central bank or should they go through the existing banking system? So that's one of the big questions there. But it seems to be mostly resolved that these things will be hierarchical in the same way that our fiat monetary system is hierarchical, with a layer of a ledger and transmission between the commercial banking system and the central bank, and then the banks would distribute to their retail customers. And a CBDC is just fiat with another name and with some other features. So it's fiat plus or minus, depending on how you want to look at it, but it's tied directly to the underlying currency. And there have been a few small nations that have implemented these. I think the Bahamas had one called the Sand Dollar, but they haven't been, had huge deployment. But the big name is China, and China has its own e and they've had it for a couple of years now. And they rolled it out in a bunch of stages with trials in particular cities, and they gave some away free to sort of get things going. And they have some big ideas yeah. and plans. They'd like to use it with their Belt and Road Initiative and use it in trade, ultimately, down the road. But for now, the growth has been pretty modest. Hmm. So I would say it's in the prototype stage. The other big player is the European Central Bank, ECB, and they were in kind of a research phase, and now they're moving into something that's more of a a prototype phase, and that's going to last a couple of years. I think we're going to see it. If you look at the language that that came out from them last year, it was pretty darn positive. This is from Christine Lagarde, the president of ECB. We need to prepare our currency for the future. We envisage a digital euro as a digital form of cash. It can be used for all digital payments free of charge, and it meets the highest privacy standards. I think they want to really emphasize the fact that this is a digital currency. Yeah, all the currency now is digital anyway, except for your physical currency. But this is a higher form, or more pure digital form. And she talks about privacy standards. So that opens up the whole question about- uh, Surveillance. Yeah, surveillance and econometrics. CBDCs have the potential of allowing you to, if you're the central bank and the banking system, to monitor transactions in a much more fine-grained way. And so, the people who study the economy and want to analyze it down to the microeconomic level are going to have potentially a wealth of data with that. The flip side is that it also opens you up to more surveillance. And there's concern that in places like China, that you know your wallet could just be shut down if they don't like the way you spending
0: your money yeah and of course they have the social credit system too presumably so that dovetails right nicely with this
1: yeah we're all under this in the u.s we're under this credit system with three main vendors and they give credit scores and that's based on your ability to pay back debt and how they Mm -hmm. perceive that in china it's a bit more expansive with social credit and so if you jaywalk too many times (laughs) Theoretically,
0: that can affect your credit score. That could be bad news, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, in the US, we already have USDT and USDC and all these stable coins that are pretty substantial in terms of market cap. So those would be essentially private versions of a CBDC? Would that be a valid way of thinking about it?
1: So those are the original stable coins, Right, and the original yeah. stable coins are essentially money market funds, so they're tied to the U.S. dollar, but you know, not perfectly, slightly loosely, and they hold reserves. And it's not always been entirely clear what reserves they've been holding, so they've been coming under more and more regulation from the SEC and and other regulators, and really pressure even from their customers to expose what their actual reserve positions are. And like a money market fund, you tend to hold it in short term. Treasury bills or commercial paper hmm. and historically money market funds pay an interest rate. These stable coins do not in and of themselves pay a dividend or yield to their holders, but you can put them onto an exchange and deposit them and you can get a uh, yield on them. there's you can stake them. And so there's sort of a proto system there, financial system or finTech uh, around that. But there are several and they've kind of cleaned up with their act of getting better reserve positions. And because the biggest ones are denominated in dollars, uh, Tether, USDT, and USDC being the biggest, there is a lot of, shall we say, pressure in the U.S. or discussion in the U.S. about do we even need a government stablecoin, CBDC? Why not just use these stablecoins instead? The Fed has had a project to study CBDC. It was run out of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston together with MIT. Hmm. Makes one wonder whether Ginsler had anything to do with it. I don't know what they're doing not. <laughs> and it's just a study. There's nothing really imminent. The Fed has been focused on their faster settlement network between banks, which is called FedNow, which they rolled out. The ACH clearing system is what you use for checks and transfers in the commercial banking system between individuals or companies. That could be improved. And a stable coin or CBDC might be one way to improve that. So It remains to be seen there's a lot of political opposition to CBDC. In fact, Trump is now essentially putting in his platform and his campaign platform that he's opposed to it. A lot of the, the libertarian type Republican Congress people are opposed to
0: CBDCs. Interesting. All right. Excellent. I think we covered quite a bit of ground. Anything else you want to add? No, I just want to thank you for having me on and for
1: covering this ground. It's very fertile ground. Over the past five years, the hash rate has grown exponentially. I think by the time we talk again, we could be at a
0: Zeta hash. Well, the supercomputing side of me rejoices with that sort of a number.
1: (laughs) Pounding at 56% over the past five years. It's incredible.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you all for listening. Once again, a reminder, this is not financial advice or any other kind of advice. And if you have any questions or comments, please let us know. And this will be posted in the usual places. So with that, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.